This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, we're going to talk about value-based care and some choices we make in deliveries. This time we'll talk about cesarean, but eventually we want to also talk about labor and vaginal delivery and prenatal care and just keep going further into the whole concept of value-based care. But first, what's something we do for no reason? How about telling women not to consume fish or certain fish at least while pregnant? Okay, so... In theory, we're supposed to tell pregnant women not to eat certain large top feeder fish because they may contain high levels of mercury that could affect the neonatal brain development. So specifically shark, swordfish, king mackerel, or tilefish. These are like the top of the food chain. And they're not particularly common anyway in grocery stores or restaurants. But what are you going to tell us about this advice? Well, like a lot of things, I think it's just not based on great evidence or the total impact of the advice hasn't necessarily been weighed. I bring this one up specifically because there's a new trial in July 2022 published in a journal called Neurotoxicology, which looked at the potential benefits of fish intake, as well as the potential harms, of course, from mercury exposure on early childhood developmental outcomes, neurologic outcomes. They looked at the association between mercury exposure and developmental metrics in the offspring and did a comparison by looking at blood and umbilical cord tissues from about 12,000 pregnancies in an area in the United Kingdom called Avon that had been tested. These tissues were tested for mercury levels. And they actually found that increased mercury levels were not associated with adverse outcomes in fish eaters. The authors discussed that the information given to pregnant women about mercury-containing foods has resulted in a lot of anxiety. And for a lot of women, just a total avoidance of fish during pregnancy. In fact, I would guess that few prenatal providers are specifically telling women not to eat the four species of fish that you just specifically listed. If they did, then it would be immediately obvious to most people that those large species of fish are not really eaten that commonly by pregnant women or anybody else, and that the restriction was not that helpful because it doesn't apply to most women. And it was never about never eating these fish. It was just about avoiding large amounts of them or eating them frequently anyway. The authors of this study found No adverse outcomes noted, but they did find that there were beneficial associations with prenatal mercury levels among fish eaters for total and performance IQ, mathematical and scientific reasoning, and birth weight among the mothers who ate fish. These same findings were discovered among a group of women observed in the Seychelles where prenatal mercury levels are about 10 times higher on average than those we see in the United States. Now, there's previous studies going back a few years that have shown that pregnant women who were scared and made anxious about eating these fish species by the general recommendation that they were bad for you, that they did tend to just eat less overall fish. And there's been some data that's indicated that this might be associated with an increased risk of preterm labor because we think some of the fats that are found in higher concentrations in fish might have a protective advantage over preterm labor. At the same time, we really haven't seen specific outcome-based data that discouraging fish intake with this general advice has helped improve the women or their offspring neurologically in any way. So maybe if you had a prenatal practice tailored to women who live in a coastal region or in a by a a lake or a river, someplace where everyone eats a lot of fish, then maybe that advice would actually be useful for them. I suppose, although I would guess more coastal rather than these larger fish are just not in lakes and streams either, right? So it would be a coastal area. I've always imagined the husband is a fisherman when he brings home catches of shark or something and they eat well at home. So I've thought that for a number of years that that's how we should deal with this data, that it really more applies to people who are at higher risk for eating these types of large fish frequently. But I think what the current study shows is that even among the women in the Seychelles who had this tenfold higher level of mercury, that the developmental and neurologic outcomes of their children were actually improved by the overall presumed benefits of fish intake. So I think it just takes more consumption to make a negative impact to outweigh the positive than we probably realized in the past. And that the advice to the average woman in America who's not exposed to these large species of fish that often might overall be counterproductive and harmful because it tends to discourage 
fish consumption overall, which is associated with things like an increased risk of full-term delivery, slightly larger birth weights, and improved cognitive abilities in the offspring. So we're not even talking right now about cooked versus uncooked, like sushi and sashimi. That's definitely a rabbit hole for another time because I looked into that a lot when I was pregnant and living in Japan. But just sticking to cooked fish, I wanted to see if there were numbers quoted anywhere to to back up these serving size recommendations because otherwise they seem totally random. And the whole reason this whole fish mercury pregnancy association ever got attention in the first place was because there were some large scale events in the past of food supplies being poisoned and contaminated in specifically in Iraq and in Japan, the 70s and earlier. And in Iraq, it was actually seeds and not fish. I'm not sure how that happened. But in Japan, it was this infamous chemical plant toxic waste dump that they put a lot of their mercury byproducts into the the water where a lot of people got their fish from. And in both cases, there were severe disabilities in the babies of the moms that ate either those contaminated seeds or the fish, just like convulsions, severe cerebral palsy, just totally non, not independently functional. And so these events were ultimately studied. The moms were found to have mercury levels of at least 10 micrograms per gram in their hair samples, which is roughly five five times that in their blood. So roughly 50 micrograms per liter in their blood. And that was the minimum amount that was deemed to be necessary to cause damage to their babies. So in comparison, that now this has been studied in the US as well. So people who eat fish very rarely, so once a month or less, have concentrations about 0.1 microgram per gram. That's based on a US study. A hundred times less. A hundred times less, yeah. And if they if those people were to add a little bit of fish in their diet, let's say from once up to twice a month, now it's 0.2 micrograms per gram. Three times a month, 0.3 micrograms. So it seems like you could eat a hundred servings a month to get to that level. Yeah. If the math holds out. Yeah. And of course, that's going to vary a bit depending on the species of fish because different species have different concentrations. But There's that's like, three servings of fish a day. Yeah, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. And there, and it does follow like the bottom feeder types of fish have like scallops have probably the least concentration. And then when it gets up to the top of the food chain, it's more concentrated. It's a very wide range. But yeah, like you said, on average, it takes probably 100 servings of fish per month to get to those same levels that would cause damage to a fetus. So so even if you were eating those kind of fish that were very high in mercury, you would still have to eat one meal of those every day, like eating a shark for dinner every day and then some. And so in that Avon study in the UK, twenty about 20% of their patients we're eating fish three times a week or more, so so about 12 times a month. And this was already in defiance of what they were being told by their OBs. But when they measured their concentrations, at the maximum, they were only about 7 micrograms per liter, which kind of follows that math that I said earlier. So very far below the level that that they had in Japan when they had the bad disabled babies. Which would have been 50 micrograms per liter of serum. Right. Yeah. So the interesting thing in that Avon study too is that there were some people who didn't eat fish who also happened to have similarly high mercury levels for some other reason. There's other ways to get exposed. But those groups with the the higher mercury and not eating fish had the biggest disadvantage. So they had the biggest difference in like their kids IQ and neurodevelopmental outcomes compared to the ones with the same mercury level who ate fish. So it's almost like something in the fish compensated for any possible harms that might have been caused by the mercury. But anyway, I guess the moral of that story is eating fish at least three times a week 
is probably very good, but maybe don't eat fish every day if you've got shark or king mackerel. And regardless, try not to eat it for every meal of the day. (laughs) And also don't eat fish from a toxic waste dump. That sounds like good advice there. Yeah. (laughs) If only you could always know before you eat. Yeah. Anyway, I guess I'll start telling people they can stock up on tuna in their pregnancy, at least have it a few times a week, and their babies will thank them. Of course, the sustainably caught tuna is good for the earth. But okay, let's move on (laughs) to the main topic. We were talking about value-based care, right? Or cost-effective care in the context of obstetrics. We could also review this for gynecology, but we're going to start with cesarean deliveries because that's, I think, low-hanging fruit. A lot of primary care physicians are moving towards this value-based care reimbursement model, and eventually this is probably going to happen in obstetrics and gynecology as well. So for na- for example, now a primary care physician might be graded on the cost of their referrals for their own value-based reimbursement. So if they refer a patient to a specific gynecologist for something like abnormal uterine bleeding, and the average cost of that one gynecologist taking care of that problem is $8,000, whereas the average cost for another gynecologist taking care of that same problem is $1,000, then the primary care physician may actually be the one who's penalized for overutilizing high-cost consultants. So in this value-based care model, they would essentially have to know what each consultant typically charges patients before they refer their patients to them, or you know, what do these consultants charge the patients? Insurance yeah, maybe plans. one doctor did a hysterectomy for abnormal bleeding and the other treated it with an IUD. So what's their tendencies, which was that yeah. led to the cost differences? Yeah, yeah. So eventually this could work its way into how most doctors in the U.S. are paid. There even now are systems where the referring provider can't choose a specific doctor. They just refer the patient to the specialty and then that network's referral management system picks who the patient goes to. And supposedly the network would be choosing the cheapest consultant in those scenarios, or maybe I should say the most cost-effective consultant, but who knows if they really have good insight into that. Yeah. Cheapest does diminish it a little bit. For the most part, the less you spend on healthcare, the better the outcomes and the science is there. But I can't wait for those changes. It really is the best thing that can happen to medicine right now to cut down on some of the egregious costs associated with overutilization of resources that we see. There's just, I think, a lot of exploitation right now of patients, particularly those who have private insurance, that's driving up the cost of healthcare for everyone. I guess it's just not always as straightforward as getting what you pay for. So do you want to just talk a little bit more about what value-based care is? It's a concept, obviously, that distinguishes us from our current fee-for-service model, where you get paid for every service that you provide, which tends to encourage providing lots of services and therefore overutilization of services. But in this value-based care model that you're describing, we would look at rewarding those physicians who are able to treat the same conditions at a lower cost than their peers. Wouldn't you be worried that would lead to the opposite problem of underutilization or cutting corners? It certainly could, obviously. And that's why we have to measure outcomes in the process of doing this. But right now, I think, frankly, we're so far on the side of overutilization that we've got a long way to go until we have to worry about underutilization. And I think the fear of lawsuits is enough to prevent a lot of underutilization in the first place. So this gets down to understanding... The definition of value. Value is just quality divided by cost, or in other words, outcomes divided by the direct and indirect costs of the care that we deliver. So this is something that can be measured and quantified, especially if there's a good record system. So if we can achieve the same desirable outcome at a lower cost, then that's definitely something we should be doing. But If we achieve a worse outcome at a lower cost, then that's not what we should be doing. That's not value-based care. But even in that context, we don't necessarily have to spend all the money in the world to achieve a slightly incrementally better outcome because that's going to take away from other patients. Right. You just described, I think, the concept of medical justice in our medical ethics system. 
when we don't use our scarce healthcare resources responsibly, then we may deprive others of improved outcomes because we spent all the money on somebody else. And so that proposition ends in a failure overall for the system. If it costs, for example, a million dollars to extend one person's length of life by one day, well, that comes at an expense maybe of years of life. We could have spent that money on to give to other patients. So we have to balance that equation for the community of patients, not just a particular patient sitting in front of you. The March of Dimes has released their new 2022 report on what they call maternity deserts in the United States. And these are areas where there's little to no access to care for women giving birth. And almost half a million births in the U.S. annually occur in the setting of a maternity desert. And now this doesn't mean that half a million Americans are giving birth at home. Actually, about 35,000 Americans are giving birth at home. Um, but a lot of times that's by choice. Or they're not giving birth in actual huts in a desert or something like that. They will generally find a hospital or other birthing facility, but they have to travel long distances and they may have gotten the bare minimum prenatal care along the way. Essentially, they have not had access to what we would all consider standard obstetric care due to having a lack of providers and facilities in their areas and a reasonable distance from where they live. And there's been an increase in the number of maternity deserts since they last did this data two years earlier in 2020. Some states are doing better compared to two years ago, like actually Florida has had a reduction in their maternity deserts, but other states are doing worse. Ohio had the biggest reduction in maternity access. Have you added a dog to our cast? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Just keep it interesting. That's a sound effect, people. There's no dog or child involved (laughs) in the production of this podcast. Yeah, the maternity desert thing is interesting. And to me, what an increase in maternity deserts indicates is that access to maternity care in rural and in some cases, poor urban areas is declining as hospitals and physicians tailor their services more and more to those who have commercial insurance or to the geographic areas, which are better reimbursed by the Medicare system which obviously includes more suburban areas or, by definition, those areas with higher cost of living. Now, all this is related to what we're going to talk about today because the reasons why hospitals and physicians and stuff are seeking to do this is because they found it increasingly difficult in delivery of maternity care to make a profit with low-paying Medicaid reimbursement. So they abandoned those patients. But if we talked about value-based care and how to provide that care more inexpensively, then I think that they could and should be able to turn a profit. And this affects three areas that I think we need to look at. So first is what we're going to talk about today, some of the things we spend money on at the time of C-section. And then the next is, as you said before, what we spend money on the time of vaginal delivery, which we'll do next episode. And then, and also just some of the things we spend during prenatal care itself that may not add value, but definitely add cost to patient care. So we have to ask, what value does a particular intervention or practice add to this maternal fetal dyad? And is that added cost worth it? Is it worth the expense? I do want to mention that it might not feel relevant to some people to worry about reimbursements and co-pays, at least on the surface, if you're in a health system that functions like a single payer system. I'm talking about systems where the patient's don't have co-pays and the physicians will earn the same regardless of what they do or how many patients they see. And it's all within a contained system. And this is similar to how healthcare works on a larger scale in probably a lot of other developed countries outside of the US. And so generally the good things about those systems, there's fewer barriers to care theoretically, and there's no financial motive to overutilize care. But Even in the U.S., those kind of smaller systems, they might get overloaded for various reasons. And then in those cases, the patients have to be referred out or seek care at other facilities and with other providers that operate under the more typical reimbursement model in the U.S. So the wise use of resources can also help to keep those kinds of single-payer-like systems, even in the U.S., from losing their patients and to overall stay viable. Yeah, I always think if you think about 
let's say you're at a unit that delivers a thousand babies a year, just for round numbers. And if you do something that costs an extra $50, that's not recoverable. Well, that's a good nurse you didn't get to hire. Like yeah. they, we have to make budgets and they have real and practical implications when we waste money. Yep. So we'll start looking at some add-ons for cesareans. So I'll start with the Alexis retractor. This is fairly commonly used during a cesarean. The company says that using it will lead to less nausea and vomiting and less postoperative pain. This is likely related to the fact that when you put in an Alexis, then it retracts everything so well, you don't have to exteriorize the uterus. Yeah. So when we talk about prices of some of these items. I will say that the prices that we're going to talk about, they vary widely. And a lot of them are subject to internal negotiations with your hospital and suppliers. And suppliers will give something, one thing cheap to run up the cost on another. It's really complicated and not transparent. So in some cases, the prices we're going to quote for you will be more than the number than you might actually be paying. And in some cases, it may be less than the number you're actually paying, depending on various factors. So pricing for This stuff is just not transparent, and that, that frankly, is a problem. But these retractors, the larger ones that are used at the time of cesarean, typically are about $75. And the question of benefit really gets down to whether or not routinely exteriorizing the uterus at the time of cesarean is harmful or not. Studies that have looked at this have found really mixed results. Several have shown a decreased rate in nausea during the cesarean, but they were usually by very few percentage points that Might have been statistically significant, but not necessarily clinically significant and didn't translate into something like needing more medicine doses or something. Now, one pro of leaving the uterus inside, theoretically, is that oxytocin will flow to the uterus more quickly and then therefore cause it to contract down, which sounds like a great thing when you say it like that. But one pro of exteriorization of the uterus during repair is that pulling up on it can really occlude the uterine arteries and cut down on how much blood loss you have until the hysterotomy is repaired. So these answers are not really intuitive. You need science to answer them. So what we need in a value-based care model is a study that says that the cost is worth the benefit, not that there might be some theoretic or marginal benefit. If, as I said, you do a thousand cesareans in your institution, then using this device in each one amounts to $75,000 a year. And the question is, where is the cost savings that would offset that expense? Or are you just hurting your unit by not having a nurse or two? Yeah, I know that exteriorizing the uterus or leaving it in seems like a minute detail. And it's not really that clear. It hasn't been that clear cut, at least in the past, of which one is better. I remember being taught to, at least by one of my attendings, to always leave it in because of the decreased nausea. And I guess the logic was that if they're not nauseated and they're not throwing up, then they won't be pushing their intestines out while into your field while you're trying to sew the uterus up with a needle. But there was an article in the Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2020 journal called The Case for Standardizing Cesarean Delivery Technique. It's a really good literature review for a lot of these sort of topics, including exteriorization or not. And in that review, they recommended exteriorization. They noted that doing that reduces blood loss, like you implied, the including the uterine arteries. And their overall conclusion was that the benefit of the reduced blood loss plus the better inspection of the uterus and adnexa would lead to a recommendation of routine uterine exteriorization. And I think one reason that I was taught by this one attending to leave it in was so that I would know how to do it when the patient, when I encountered a patient that had so many adhesions that I just couldn't exteriorize. So... Yeah. And I will say, though, in some of those cases, you can't use the retractor anyway because yeah, it yeah. gets in the way. But yeah. but in general, then, so it sounds like we're saying no to the Alexiso retractor. Yeah. No to routine use. I don't want to throw them all away just yet. I think they can help in some less routine situations. Some cases when there are too many adhesions, sometimes you can still fit it in and expose the uterus well. But I think it also helps if you don't have experienced assistants who know how to use retractors to expose what needs to be exposed. In those situations, the alternative is pack the bowel away with a lot of sponges and then have a handheld retractor that you're going back and forth with and just constantly readjusting the assistant who just doesn't get it. And I've unfortunately had some 
situations where it's the middle of the night and they pulled a scrub tech that had never been in a C-section and it's an emergency C-section and it's just not very helpful to have them there when they don't know how to retract anything. That's all to say exteriorizing the uterus is better if possible. If it's not possible for whatever reason, then having a good assistant or two is the next best thing. But then if you can't do either of those things or the anatomy is really abnormal and challenging, then I think there is a place occasionally to use an Alexis. I think it can help free up everybody's hands. Okay. But no to routine Alexis retractors. Okay. No All to right. routine. I'm going to save at least 95% <laughs> of them. Yeah. 98% of them. Yeah, that sounds okay. reasonable. All right. Okay. What's next? Next, these there's these new zip skin closure devices. They're basically these little adhesive strips that go on either side of the incision with miniature zip ties in between, and then you can tighten them up to approximate the incision. It seems like putting on steri strips, but then they have this built-in zip tie thing between them. I think it's hard to explain, but people can Google to get a visual. But these vendors report an improved strength compared to suture with twice the cosmetic repair satisfaction, I think, and 12 times the strength of regular suture in their sales pitch. Yeah, Stryker sells these, and I believe the cost is about $55 per closure if you buy in sufficient bulk. The gold standard closure with suture and glue, which is, I think, where the literature is at now, or perhaps some people are putting stereo strips on, is less than $10. So you're comparing $10 to $55. Bucks. These zip tie zip devices are rather large or awkward for someone who has to wear pants over the incision compared to a traditional closure. So I'm not sure that patients necessarily will appreciate these devices, just as they don't appreciate staples, frankly. But as far as the claims of it being stronger than suture, well, I'm not sure that matters. I've never had a skin incision on a C-section pop open due to the fact the suture broke. So it's like a difference without a distinction. And many of their other claims are actually related to comparing them to staples, not what I would consider the gold standard for closure. In their literature review that they cite, none of the data involved cesarean deliveries. They have lots of knees and orthopedic things like that. Now, there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov that hopefully you're familiar with, where you can look at studies that are underway or that were planned and see if they were ever finished or published. And in this case, I did that. There was a study done by the company that owned it before Stryker that looked at suture versus the ZIPS product for C-section. And the study was meant to enroll 60 patients. This was five years ago, and they were going to look at all these sorts of outcomes you can imagine to see if the product was better. But the study was never published, and the results were not released by the company. Now, why do you think they didn't publish their data? Well, I can imagine. So, And this kind of thing happens a lot, and that's one of the reasons why I mention it. Like, if they had the study, it would be published. So if they're making claims that this is somehow beneficial, it's a cesarean, it's not based upon any scientific data. And in fact, the company probably possesses a study that shows it's not better. They just won't publish it. So, All right. So let's not use the zip closure device then. But here's another add-on. How about this fetal pillow? It's a little inflatable balloon that you can put in the vagina when a woman has been completely dilated and is pushing, but then the baby's head is stuck. It's not coming down any further. And you want to do a C-section. You can put this balloon up into the cervix and pump it up. And that theoretically will softly elevate the fetal head to make it easier to pull the baby out at the time of cesarean, because those can be really difficult deliveries. So on their website, they say that using this device can save up to $1,200 per patient. So it sounds like they've already done the work for you on calculating the cost. You're right. The sales pitch for this is based on the idea that using the pillow will reduce the length of stay. And the reason it'll do that is because it'll reduce the need for blood transfusions. And the reason it'll do that is because it will reduce lacerations and things like that down in the cervix that might lead to more blood loss. They also claim that it will reduce operative time by 20 minutes per patient, which I find incredibly shocking and hard to believe. But I'll tell you why. All these claims come from one study that was published in India in 2016 in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics. This was a study that was not randomized. 
And this was a hospital that had been using the device on a sort of trial period exclusively for three or four years before they did the study. And then what they did was they found 120 patients that they didn't use it on and compared it to 120 patients in a non-randomized manner that they did use it on. But it's really fascinating as someone who's done, I don't know, probably 1,500 C-sections in my life. In the 120 patients that they didn't use it on, they had to take four patients back to the operating room for bleeding. I've never taken one back to the operating room for bleeding, but knock on wood. They gave 22 of them a blood transfusion, like one in five of them got a blood transfusion. That's crazy. 26 of them had more than a liter of blood loss. And the average surgery time was 54 minutes and the average length of stay was five days. So none of that comports with just on the surface with real world experience with cesareans. And also the trainees, by the way, who were doing these surgeries had only been using, so these are like interns, had only been using the pillow exclusively for those previous three or four years, meaning that both the trainees and their supervisors had little to no recent practical experience in conventional methods that you and I might use for dealing with deeply impacted heads. So there are other studies. There was a study done in the United States published in the Green Journal in April of 2020 that looked at a wide variety of maternal and neonatal outcomes, including need for transfusion and length of stay and NICU admission rates and APGARs and all these sorts of differences you might imagine or expect to find something. And the only significant finding that they discovered was that a 23-second quicker delivery time, though they didn't find this was associated with any improved neonatal outcomes. And another trial done in the United Kingdom, published in May of 2021 in AOGS, that this ends up being the largest trial done to date. They found exactly zero differences in maternal or neonatal outcomes when the pillow was used. And this being done in the United Kingdom was because it's found wide adoption. The company was started in the United Kingdom by a British physician and it found wide adoption. And then the National Health Service is like, well, we should study this. And why are we using this? It's not a value-based proposition. I'm sure 23 seconds can feel like a long time during an unscheduled C-section when the baby's head is stuck, but it's good to know that those babies still did just as well as the ones who delivered 23 seconds earlier. So yeah, it's funny that the company didn't use any of those studies on their website. Were you able to find how much these things cost? Not specifically, and I've asked around to to get a range, and if we get a more specific number later, I'll update everybody, but I I did figure something out. Cooper Surgical bought the British maker of this device in 2021 for 52 million U.S. dollars, and that's why you're all of a sudden seeing it advertised so heavily at our meetings. We saw it when we were in San Diego. So the question is how much that 23 seconds reduction time is worth, I guess, and I couldn't find the actual number, but based upon the prospectus that they had during the time of the the public acquisition, acquisition and all that, it has to be at least $250 wholesale. But I'd be interested again to, if anyone listening knows the specific cost and I'm working on trying to get a better number, it could be substantially higher. And I think that's why on the website, when you click on financial information on their website, they just take you to this page that shows this claim that it can save up to $1,200 a patient. But even that has an asterisk like, well, if they have things go wrong, right? So again, one reason why blood loss and uterine extensions happen in these sorts of deliveries is that when the uterine incision is made and you struggle to disengage and pull this baby's head up, you you can really tear downwards into and extend into the uterine artery if you do that. If you can palpate how deeply the head is impacted before making the incision, you can have an assistant push up with evenly spread pressure through the vaginal canal as you pull up on the baby's shoulder. And if that doesn't work, we talked about this before on the podcast, you can employ the pet warden maneuver, which starts in most cases with delivering the shoulders and arms first, followed by the breech. And lastly, just pulling up to deliver the head. It's definitely worth watching this technique. We talked about that before or going to a tutorial to see how it's done. But all this stuff is meant to help avoid tearing at open bleeding vessels on the uterus without needing a special device. And I'll mention what I personally do and teach is to always make that incision just higher than you think. They've been pushing the loading segments really well thinned out and longer. So whatever you think to do it, go like two or three centimeters higher. And I'm right-handed. And so I stand on the patient's right side. But for these incisions, for these deeply impacted heads, I use my left hand and slide over the head so that there's no torquing of my wrist against the incision. And I pull the baby up and then I actually replace it into my right hand and deliver it. And I just frankly never have extensions, knock on wood. Yeah, I know sometimes it's such a tight fit. It's hard to even slide a finger in between the pelvic bone and the baby's head. But I think if you have a combination of gently pulling up and someone from below is maybe pulling down, then then you can get around that. I have not done the Pat Warden maneuver before, but I have been to a session on it and 
it's, it seems like it could be really useful in the right circumstance. So anyway, moving on to the next thing, the Provena. We've talked about it before, so we can be brief on it. It's the little miniature port, the sort of incisional wound vac for, for high risk patients for some kind of wound complication. The company would like us to use these on anybody who is obese or has any other risk factors for infection, maybe like diabetes or immune suppression. And these things cost $500. And when we talked about it before, our conclusion was that it's just not a value-based proposition. The data doesn't show it to have any benefit at all, really. And we discussed that using this device routinely, at least, might add as much as $300 million a year to the healthcare costs of our country, which I'm sure any company wouldn't mind being on the receiving end of, but we're not on the receiving end, we're on the losing end. Yeah, we talked about that in detail in season three, episode 10. So I'll shut up. Yeah. So let's move on to tap blocks and Expiril. We've talked about that before as well. And we talked about Expiril versus regular bupivacaine. And we also about talked about tap blocks in general, ju- just doing them period or not. Yeah, we talked about that, as you said, actually a few times, but the first time was back in season one on episode eight, where we talked extensively about Expirel. And we've touched on some of the follow-up literature that's been published since then. And really, there's just no benefit found in well-designed studies of Expirel compared to regular bupivacaine. But it does cost $300 a dose versus $3 a dose for regular bupivacaine. We also discussed just the idea, as you said, of doing a tap block, even with regular bupivacaine, versus just adding the traditional intrathecal morphine and whether or not this was beneficial and whether or not it was helpful in reducing the amount of narcotics that the mother was exposed to and if that meant anything. And we looked at the data and concluded that these tap blocks also may not be worth it for the average patient, at least. We didn't really talk about the cost of a tap block, though, on that episode, I don't think, just the cost of the Expiril. Right. The supplies and the medications for a tap block really aren't that expensive, as long as we're using regular bupivacaine. But there is going to be a procedure fee that the anesthesia team would charge. Do you, what? Yeah, yeah, it's not that much. But again, now when we give these fees based upon CPT codes, that's going to depend on the insurer. So the reimbursement value unit is 2.02 for a tap block with ultrasound guidance. So depending on the payer, that's somewhere from a low of $50 to maybe a commercial payer being closer to $200. Well, that's not too bad if it's going to benefit someone and maybe help them take less opioids, have earlier mobility and all of that stuff they they talk about in ERAS. Yeah, I could definitely see the benefit for some patients that it might be beneficial for them, but certainly not with the liposomal bupivacaine. I know that some providers actually admit all the opioids in their neuraxial anesthesia when they're doing a tap block, if they're doing a tap block. And I'd be curious to hear an anesthesiologist's perspective on the benefits of an opioid-free spinal, though. Some patients may have a reason for wanting to avoid it. So maybe it makes a difference for someone with a high opioid tolerance or a high risk of addiction or something like that. But at the same time, I don't know that I've ever seen someone develop an addiction to opioids because they had astromorph in their spinal. And I think the science is pretty clear that's not where we need to be tackling the opioid epidemic. Usually the side effects that we're worried about are just itching and nausea and things like that, which are treatable. But in a particular patient, a tap block might be worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. Let's move on. This next one isn't really like a fancy new product or anything, but it's just the practice of getting la- getting blood gases and getting a post-op CBC on everybody. So we did talk about the routine cord gases, I think on the last episode. And just to recap, we concluded that getting cord gases routinely on every uncomplicated delivery could hurt you medically, medico-legally just as much as it could help you. Whereas if the delivery was complicated, it probably is still prudent to get them. Because if you don't get them and the baby does poorly, it's going to be assumed that the gases were bad and that there was some birth injury. So the bad gases won't really (laughs) hurt you in that case. But if the baby does poorly and your gases were good, that could really help exonerate you. So we had agreed on selective cord blood gases, but I don't think we talked specifically about their costs. And we really haven't talked about 
routine post-op CBCs for the moms the next The gases, too, have quite a price range, like all the things we're discussing. But the average in the United States seems to be somewhere around 35 bucks for a set of gases. Some facilities also are ordering lactic acid levels, which we didn't talk about, but they're using them in the same way with the same thought process. And these are about $5 for a lactic acid level. Some institutions obviously would be less and more. So for the typical patient, as we discussed in the previous episode, that doesn't have any issues with neonatal depression or the fetal tracing or some sentinel events occurred or whatever, this is wasted money. Now, if 40 bucks or $35 saves you a multi-million dollar lawsuit, then certainly it'll be cost effective. So I think that's right. We just need to limit them to populations where something may have happened and where they specifically will make a difference. All right. So what about the cost of a CBC? The real cost of the test to most hospitals, because these aren't reimbursed, this is just comes out of whatever you're paid, right? So, But the real cost is probably somewhere around $10, maybe more or less for some institutions. There's an article I'll put a link to from 2021 that looks at the value of routine hemoglobins after what they called uncomplicated cesareans. And basically, they concluded that they were unnecessary and really didn't end up changing the management unless something happened that you were worried about, like excessive bleeding or the mother was having symptoms the next morning. The other area might be a mother who's starting starting hemoglobin was already low, say eight or less. But for the vast majority of patients, CBCs are just not worthwhile. I know I was taught as an intern by a resident that was maybe one or two years ahead of me to always get a complete blood count after every C-section. But now that we're so good at quantifying blood loss in, in the surgery and even afterwards by weighing pads and stuff, and we're checking their labs before surgery monitoring their vital signs and their symptoms and bleeding after surgery. I'd have to say that I've never seen a CBC alone be the thing that alerts us to some need for an additional workup or intervention. That's right. We're not even, we're not even going to transfuse based on a certain number. We're going to transfuse based on symptoms. So that's always the question with tests is how does this change my management? And we've come from a bygone era where tons of labs were ordered for tons of different things. And now lots of hospital systems like mine are implementing choosing wisely programs to try to go through and reduce these very expensive and unwarranted tests. And to add to this whole routine test collection, there's Apparently, some doctors that will also send the placenta to the pathologist routinely after every delivery, including cesareans. I haven't seen this done myself anywhere that I've trained. And I know that there definitely are things that can be learned from placental pathology. But in most routine deliveries, it really doesn't make any sense. And even in cases of a suspected infection, sending it to the pathologist to have them confirm that it was infected rarely affects the clinical care. Most of the time, if there's a suspected infection, then they'll just treat the baby as if the baby was infected. They're not going to wait for the placenta. They're going to do that. Yeah, they're going to have already done that. Yeah. Yeah. So there may be some rare cases. Let's say the baby is admitted for a really long NICU stay. Maybe the neonatologist wants to know that information because that'll help them decide how long to continue the baby's antibiotics or something like that. But they're also probably getting cultures from the newborn itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So most of the time, the mom and baby both get discharged home before the placental pathology ever results. And then it just shows up in that obstetrician's results inbox and there's no action to be taken. Now, then there's other situations, like if you see an abruption at the time of delivery, and that's what the symptoms and signs suggested, that also is a case where, sure, you can send it, but that's not necessarily going to tell you very much in the majority of cases. Now, there are rare cases where, let's say there's preterm delivery or growth restriction, where sometimes the placental tissue could be very abnormal and knowing that could help inform on the risk of recurrence in future pregnancies. So massive perivillus fibrin deposition is one of those conditions that occurs in less than 0.03% of pregnancies. So that's usually associated with some other kind of abnormal sign. Like I said, the growth restriction, it's not going to happen in a full term uncomplicated pregnancy where you suddenly discover that because you routinely send placentas. So I think we have to be very selective about what we're looking for when we send a placenta and know ahead of time, what are we hoping to find out or to not find that would 
help answer some specific question about delivery. So do you have an idea of how much the placental pathology test costs? Well, I was looking for that, and I actually got a very accurate number from a friend of mine who's a pathologist and is always good to answer a text. And But it's funny, when I was looking for this answer and looking just for in general about the utility of this, I found an article from 1990 in the Gray Journal that argued that all placentas from all deliveries should be examined by a pathologist. This was an editorial by a pathologist that didn't really provide concrete reasons for it, but just making an argument for why it should happen. So it was interesting. And at the time, though, this is when people were influenced about this sort of thing. And he was arguing that it would be protective against lawsuits and that the pathologist could find things that would clear people of lawsuits, etc. Now, I told you before that one of my favorite things to do is to read the follow-up letters to the editor. And about a year later, in the next year's edition anyway, there was a follow-up letter to the editor that criticized those authors for claiming that it would be cost-effective to send all placentas because their claim essentially in the, in the paper was that the average obstetrician is sued successfully for damages that result in about five to six million dollars of settlements in her career, and that they were claiming, at least, that placental pathology could clear the OB of those malpractice cases if only they had sent the placenta. But of course, we know on the surface that that's simply not true. The authors responded that they didn't actually mean, yeah, that every case that was true or that they could actually clear all of them. They were just saying that even if there was one case of a multi-million dollar settlement where this was cleared up, then it would be worth it. But that's not how they wrote it. In any event, I do think that this these papers at that time were the origin story, if you will, of people learning, starting to send placentas routinely to pathology. And it started out at large academic centers. And maybe the doc has a sort of an interest in research and collecting some of this. And then over time, it trickles down to other places because, hey, if they're doing it at Yale, then it must be a good thing, right? So I think this is how it started. And I've definitely seen people who do it routinely. And I'll put a link to an article in 2015, if you're interested in more of this, from Seminars in Perinatology that does a much better job of presenting what you really can get from placental pathology and how narrow its usefulness is and when it might be appropriate. But yeah, the bottom line is most placentas should not go to pathology. So the typical reimbursement from Medicare for placental pathology is $290. Medicaid may perhaps pay a little bit. Commercial insurance may pay significantly more, even double. So we can probably use the Medicare rate of $290 as the average for what this costs. It does make sense to send placentas more frequently if you're at a tertiary care facility, because a lot of those patients will have some kind of medical complications at baseline. So probably all the same patients who have some delivery event where you would want to selectively get the cord gases, you should consider placental pathology as well. But then also, in addition to that, for many unexplained preterm deliveries or patients with a suspected chronic abruption or some other adverse pregnancy outcome where the placental pathology could be useful. And you also should know the quality of your pathologist that looks at these. Some will actually just look at it and say, that is the placenta. And then others will do a very detailed analysis So it could potentially hurt you medico-legally if you send a placenta and you're looking for some maybe chronic ischemic issue that you're suspecting, and then the pathologist just says, that's a a normal placenta. So that's just an example of how variable the placental pathology can be. And those articles talk about that, the need for kind of standardizing the reporting and how variable it is. And so some people have fantastic, wonderful placental pathologists and some don't. So, (laughs) All right, let's move on. So another thing that can happen with C-sections is an extended length of stay up to three or four days when they could have gone home earlier. So the question is, can we cut down the length of stay or should we? And how much does each extra day in the hospital cost. Yeah, I would argue that for most people, if the patient can go home in two days, they could probably go home in one. And if the patient could go home in three days, probably two would work, etc. In fact, during COVID, we talked previously on the podcast about literature that looked at this and we've seen it validated where people have worked harder during COVID to try to get people discharged out of the hospital more quickly. And we discussed a review article that looked at that and found that these efforts of discharging people a day or so sooner did not lead to any measurable adverse outcomes. And patients generally like to go home sooner, particularly for just elective repeats that were done 
in the morning, next day discharge should probably be routine. That's what we try to do. The other thing that we do sometimes is we keep the mother longer if the newborn has to stay a little longer. So a mom who could have gone home on, say, postoperative day two stays until day four just because the baby needed to stay until day four for billy lights or something. But that's inappropriate. The mother can stay with her newborn, but she doesn't have to be a patient in the hospital to do that. So you should discharge the mother whenever the mother should be discharged, regardless of the newborn status. And each of those extra hospital days cost actual cost about $400. I know that there is a little bit of risk calculation that can happen in those type of situations because some moms will get readmitted for things like infection or bleeding or hypertensive disorders. And if they do have to be readmitted, they're going to go through the ER. And this is regardless of whether they're coming from home or whether they're just hanging out in the baby's room in the hospital. So it's not an ideal situation to have to readmit someone who was just discharged to continue caring for their newborn in a hospital room. So I think if a mom is judged to be at some higher risk of readmission for some reason, then maybe an alternative to discharging a mom whose baby is staying an extra day or two, that still could help with the whole value-based care could be maybe keeping them as a patient, but decreasing the frequency of certain nursing interventions like vital sign checks, etc., And that way, the close follow-up that you plan for them can just be carried out in the hospital. Yeah. So don't discharge people unless you feel like they should be discharged. We're not discharging them. If you're worried about something, discharge them. But I like the point of doing less vitals and things like that, too, just to make the stay nicer and less expensive. All right. Let's move on to using ligature for tubal ligation during cesarean. This is another common add-on since now uh, it's becoming a lot more routine to do a complete salpingectomy for sterilization rather than a partial salpingectomy. The, due to the increased vascularity of the postpartum uterus, a lot of people will just resort to using an energy sealing device to remove the fallopian tubes rather than using clamps and sutures and ties. Well, again, the actual cost of one of these units will vary widely based upon what your contracting is, which unit it is, that sort of thing. But the average large hospital probably is spending about $600 on one of these handheld energy sealing devices. And the cost goes up closer to $1,000 if you have poor contracting, I guess. And there's been some literature that validates complete salpingectomy at the time of cesarean delivery. And I'll put a link to a 2020 meta-analysis and systematic review that discusses that literature. And in many facilities, complete salpingectomy has become the standard of care for female sterilization. But a few of the studies included in this meta-analysis did use energy sealing devices, but most of them just use cautery and suture or clamps and suture. And the outcomes were the same regardless of the methods. The main sticking point is that, especially with a complete salpingectomy, it can take longer to tie off each vessel rather than using a device that does it all with one click. But I have a few answers to this. First, if you get a pair of debakies or other pickups that are small with an even surface, then you can use that in conjunction with a monopolar cautery to essentially create your own vessel sealing device. But if that doesn't float your boat, you can also get pretty quick at creating windows and tying all off the vessels with practice fairly quickly. If you do it once and you hate it because it took you a whole 15 minutes longer to complete the salpingectomy and you give up forever in favor of the ligature, you're probably not given enough of a chance. But finally, why not do a partial salpingectomy? It's literally so quick. And again, show me a study that says partial salpingectomy is inferior to complete salpingectomy for sterilization or for any other secondary outcomes. I think the issue is about cancer prevention. And so I think that's more the onus of why people are doing it. But at five or six or six hundred dollars a piece, you're going to have to spend like 20 minutes of OR time doing the salpingectomy in a traditional method to justify the cost, maybe 25 minutes, because if you're spending 25 minutes there, you're probably spending five minutes with the ligature. But these can be done in three or four minutes with traditional methods. Yeah, I know that the theory with ovarian cancer is that it arises from probably the fimbriated ends of the tubes in a lot of cases. But again, is there... Yeah, I don't think I have a study... Yeah. And we don't. It's just something we're assuming that in 10 years will come out. So it's opportunistic. Okay. So let's synthesize all these things that we discussed into a scenario. So let's say a woman is in labor and she has told the docs that she wants her tubes tied after delivery and she's completely dilated and she's pushing, but it's not going really well. So after some time at zero station, the doctor decides to do a C-section. 
let's say her BMI is 34, which is pretty average. So his colleague puts in a fetal pillow to elevate the head. They go to the OR. And then after they make the incision, they put in an Alexis retractor. And then he delivers the baby. He removes her tubes with the ligature. He sends the tubes to pathology. Well, and the placenta, right? The tubes is one thing, but placenta is another. Yeah, he sends the placenta to pathology. He gets cord gases and a lactate because it was an unscheduled C-section. And he wants to use both the zip wound closure and the Provena, unfortunately. He had a lot of lunches. Wow. (laughs) He can't use them both at the same time. It's contraindicated. So because she's obese, he goes with the Provena. He does regular suture and then he puts on a Provena. And then she also gets a tap block with Expirel. Of course. And then the next morning, he gets a CBC. And then he decides he'll keep her for total of four post-op days so she can have some help before she goes home. Very kind. Even though she's doing really well and there's nothing that changed in her management starting from post-op day two on. Okay, so I guess we're going to compare this scenario that we've set up to somebody who doesn't do those things and maybe sends her home on post-operative day two. Yeah, that would be the contrast or the other extreme. Or the norm. I don't know, extreme. The norm. That would be the norm. Okay, yeah. That would be what I would do. Okay. (laughs) So this sort of care is not, you're not exaggerating. This sort of care happens every day all over the country. In fact, this doctor you've described believes that he's providing world-class, thorough, and attentive care. He's using the latest and the best technology. And he's been doing thorough and studious examinations of the mother to make sure she's doing well. And the patient believes that she received world-class care. And she recommends all of her friends go there because the doctor was so up-to-date and use the latest techniques that he described how to her how great he was and so thorough and cautious and attentive and he'll probably also send her for physical therapy for postpartum routinely and, but we can talk about that in the next episode I guess because we didn't do that I think physical therapy is great I think everyone should have access to it if they want it or they think they need it but we won't include we'll that have in to di- it. we'll have to discuss the scientific literature on pelvic sure. physical therapy that, you'll be disappointed that's okay that's a spoiler I guess <laughs> But we won't include that in today's calculations. So let's tally up what doctor this doctor has done. Yeah, let's call him Dr. Wonderful. So his method cost an extra $3,000 using some of the more conservative numbers for the ranges of the costs that we cited. I imagine that he also has a really good relationship with the reps who sell all these products, of course. And they tell him that once a month when they bring lunch for his entire office staff, how great a doctor he is and how he's saving lives and providing world-class care. But the typical reimbursement from Medicaid for a cesarean delivery is somewhere between twelve dollars and $13,000 in most states. And of course, we still have to pay for all the regular care she received. We have to pay the nurses. We have to pay for the induction of labor that this patient underwent and whatever treatment goes into that and all the things she received if she was in spontaneous labor before she got her cesarean. We have to pay the scrub tech. We have to pay for the suture and the regular supplies of the operating room, the disposables, and we have to pay for the anesthesia and the cost per minute to use the operating room, the facility fees, all those sorts of things. So spending that extra $3,000 means you're probably going to lose money on the delivery. And then that puts your hospital in danger of losing obstetric services, particularly in those rural hospitals and those inner city underserved hospitals that we talked about, which then creates more maternity deserts where women can't get access to maternal care. And that means more and more women have to drive an hour or two hours or maybe more to receive routine prenatal care and routine delivery care. And that means that women and their newborns may suffer from real harms because they can't access care or get to care quick enough for it to make a difference in their outcome. I thought initially you were just being a party pooper again, but you really are bringing this full circle to the whole maternity deserts concept. Again, this is medical justice. So this hypothetical doctor wonderful that we described is maybe an extreme example because he used all of the gadgets, right? But he used the fetal pillow as Maybe his patient had a hemorrhage that did warrant a follow-up CBC, or maybe the fetal tracing was ominous and he needed to get cord gases. So some of these things obviously have a role. And I'm not saying that, of course, that we throw all these things away and that we give patients the cheapest, most minimalist care possible. That will create more costs in the end because we'll see worse outcomes and have to deal with them. But there is this large-scale sort of indication creep where things that are really beneficial for some small subset of patients then get used indiscriminately for everyone at a routine. And the industry that sells these products has every incentive to push themselves 
onto us to be overutilized by us. They would like every patient to have these things all the time. But we have scarce and finite resources available, and we have to be good stewards of how our monies are spent. When we spend or waste money in one area, we're taking away money and resources that could have been used to help people in another area. So it's a cornerstone of our ethical practice as physicians that we not spend money on things that don't benefit the patient. You can call that value-based care if you want, but it's really just basic medical ethics. So why aren't hospitals pushing back more on all these fancy new gadgets and extra tests if it's causing them to lose money? I think it depends on the hospital. A lot of hospitals lose money on obstetrics, but they view it as a service that they just have to provide. And therefore, unlike oncology or cardiology or orthopedics, OB just becomes a redheaded stepchild of the hospital. No offense, of course, to redheaded stepchildren. Yeah, and I hate that phrase, by the way. And we certainly don't need emails. Angry Every e- time I say a single thing. <laughs> Just get some angry emails. From I someone. love redheaded stepchildren. Me too. But so you're basically saying that because obstetric departments tend to lose money for a hospital, they're regarded as, as an undesired family member, meaning it's somebody that you feel obligated, you have to keep supporting them, although you're just drained by them and, and you don't even love them. Is that accurate? I don't think I was using redheaded stepchild that literally, but yeah, <laughs> essentially it's just this thing we have to do and we pay, we make up for the losses with other money saving divisions. Now, some hospitals that have primarily commercially insured patients, well, they don't mind these gadgets because they can still make a profit on those patients. Commercial insurance companies will reimburse maybe twice as much for a cesarean as these government insurance plans. Then the doctors in the hospital, of course, they want to try very hard to market to commercially insured patients by offering the latest and greatest, these fancy things, the pillow, the expro, the zip suture, whatever it is, and implying that if patients come and get these things, they'll be better served if they go to that hospital compared to one that doesn't offer them. So I don't see ads specifically for things like this on TV, but there are plenty of huge and visually pleasing ads in the obstetric journals for sure. And the doctors who use these things, they definitely talk them up about how these are innovative and they're doing the latest and greatest things to their patients. And so I think this is what happens a lot in the industry. And so they attract these commercial pay patients and they can still make a profit. And the presumption is that a richer patient who has more money is paying more money for commercial insurance because they assume that it's going to get them better care. but Ironically, for all we know, the commercial pay patients could be getting worse care than Medicaid patients. Yeah, and they're just paying more, right? This These funds that come from your job or whatever to pay for your commercial insurance appreciate you're making a smaller salary because your host, cost of health care is being driven up by these non-value-based products. And you're and yeah, you're not getting better care. And it actually reminds me, we talked about the British TV show, This Is Going to Hurt. And one of the things that I liked, I think we both liked, was where they show patients in the National Health Service in this crowded, busy, under-supported hospital were actually getting better care when it mattered than the patients in those fancy, the posh private hospital. Yeah, that was a pretty ridiculous situation that it was true, but just the way they portrayed it, it was like these patients in the posh hospital were offered caviar, snacks, and really plush linens and fine wine and like a piano in the lobby and stuff, all as an incentive to pay premiums for getting their care at that facility. But then there was no in-house attending overnight when these patients delivered. They were they had they were left out to dry essentially. And so then in the show there's a patient that had a had such a bad complication, they had to be transferred to the NHS hospital in order to save their life. But the NHS hospital had really drab decor, no caviar, no chandeliers. So it was still unthinkable. Yeah. So it was still viewed as inferior from the patient perspective. Yeah, and here we just talked about a few unnecessary medical devices and some of these actually do cause harm. They're not just unnecessary, they cause harm. Remember, we said before that Provena is actually associated with worse outcomes. And repairing the uterus in situ, when it could have been easily exteriorized at the time of cesarean, was associated with more blood loss. And we're making that association, of course, for the routine Alexis retractor. So some of these things actually are not just nothing. They're not just caviar. They're actually causing harm. So there's like three layers of injustice here. The first one is when those devices cause more harm than good to the patient, and not just economic harm, but physical harm. So you mentioned the Alexis and the Provena. Maybe someone would consider these to be 
minor harms at their worst, but, and I don't think there was necessarily a harm with the fetal pillow, but still harm when you could pay less to harm less is something we should avoid. So that's the first layer. The second layer would be that it does drive up the cost of healthcare for that specific patient and then also for everyone else collectively. And then the third layer is that it creates this situation where obstetrics loses money for many hospitals, which incentivizes them to shut down and consolidate obstetric services. And that creates maternity deserts and restricts access to care for more and more women in the country. And that is probably the most harmful part of this. Women and children will die in, they probably already are, we just probably don't have the specific studies on it, but if they don't have adequate maternity care and delivery services, then you know, you're just setting them up for a bad outcome. And that's just going to become more commonplace when people on the other end in the in the rep lunch break room and are abusing the healthcare system to earn more money. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I think anytime people start to view healthcare as a business, these sorts of things are going to happen. I often say that the number one fix, like if I was czar for a week that we could make to the U.S. healthcare system would be to, and that would have the most immediate consequence and direct impact, would be to pass a law that required the same payment from all payers for the same service. This would stop this two or even three-tiered system of healthcare that we have immediately and stop all the competition for better paying patients and the discrimination against people who, based discrimination against people based upon their insurance status. We've pretty much run out of time and we're going to have numerous things to go through for vaginal delivery. So we will plan on that for our next episode. So I think we can do this kind of the same sort of analysis. Sounds good. All right. The Thinking About OBGYN website will have links to our articles that we discussed today and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.